This is the Journey 66 Book Writing Podcast. I'm Melissa Parks with Dave Getz, and we are your road trip advisors. You may be at mile marker one and just thinking about an idea for a book, or maybe you've gone off-road in your writing and you want to restart the journey. Join Dave and me as we help you buckle up and write. Is your idea bookworthy? The answer begins with your book thesis. The idea functions like a rudder and directs the entire process of writing. Often, writers miss the so what question of book writing and thus fail to connect the book's thesis to the lives of their readers. A narrow, focused, and fresh thesis is the most basic and first element of a successful writing project. Today, we've invited Mickey Maudlin, Senior Vice President and Executive Editor at HarperCollins, who wades through book proposals and manuscripts every day. He has a refined sense for what makes a great book idea. Today, he discusses with us the importance of a strong book thesis and what separates the great from the average. Mickey, welcome to the show. Thanks, Melissa. It's good to be here. So before we pick your brain on creating a strong book thesis, tell us a little bit about your work at HarperCollins. I work in the imprint called Harper One. Harper One is publishing group is part of the adult trade division of HarperCollins, which also has a children's, actually has a HarperCollins Christian publishing house too. But the adult division is kind of general market trade books. And within there, there's three divisions within that. not to get too complicated, and Harper One Group being uh, one of them, and one imprint within the Harper One Group is the Harper One imprint, where I work. Historically, it was the Harper Religion uh, imprint in New York, and then in 1977, became Harper San Francisco, and then later Harper One, and we've kind of expanded our mission, so it's kind of transformative nonfiction, anything that changes yourself, the world, your community, your body, anything makes it better. So health, nutrition, self-help, social justice, uh, a lot of uh, narrative nonfiction, anything that changes the world or changes you. And religion, spirituality fits within that. So Mick, though, what do you actually do at Harper One? That's a great question because a lot of people are confused about what editors do, especially at commercial houses. Uh, and it's not what people think. A lot of people assume I sit around and read all day. Um, I wish I could read all day. I mostly write you know, thousands of emails and uh, talk to people because there's a number of aspects of the job. What, one is acquisitions, trying to find new projects, new authors that will work. And then there's project management, seeing it through the process after we uh, sign up the book, get it help the author to write it and get it through, but cover, design, interacting with marketing, publicity, and the liaison with the author as we go through the whole process, including selling the book. So it's project management and kind of deal making are the two main headings for my job. Tell us about a recent project that you got really excited about because of the idea itself. You, you look, you talk to the author, you uh, assessed the manuscript, went to pub board, and they, get, they said yes. You got really, really excited about it. Just talk about the idea and why you got excited about it. Thomas Moore, who wrote uh, Care of the Soul years ago, has been devoted his life to kind of helping doctors and therapists, in particular psychiatrists, and his, where he taught, 
how to integrate spirituality in their therapy. And uh, he's done a number of books over the years, but the kind of his life work is doing soul therapy. And finally, at the end of his career, he wants to do the book like here is the main textbook on soul therapy, how to integrate spirituality and therapy for anyone who wants a helping relationship. And I just thought obvious how obviously this is a great project because you have someone who's a leader of his field, a master in a subject matter that everyone already respects. He's been on Oprah a couple of times at Super Soul Sunday, um, Tip, Chris Tibbet, etc. Here's his the book that kind of defines his whole career. So it has kind of prestige, substance, it's going to backlist, uh, some, an author who knows how the game is played in terms of publishing, getting out there, his responsibilities, um, and the book is ready to go. We just have to fine tune it. Uh, but the pitch, the what we're selling, what we're promising, we are all in place. So I was thrilled. Part of it is just the thrill of being able to work with authors such as Thomas More. He's he's very delightful. So the the idea though of that integrating uh, spirituality with therapy, it seems general. Was there something really specific about his approach to it that really captured your attention? Part of the is what is what is the book, but part of it is where does it come from and who's writing it. And since he's already known as a leader in the field and such an established figure, former monk, Jungian training, and uh, has already written kind of a definitive book on the subject, people are already looking for him to do to provide substance. And this is a detailed soul-stretching book for the therapist or even for the layperson who wants to have kind of that uh, spiritual helping relationship with others. So I could see just from the outline that he he covers all the things that you would never, uh, someone coming to it like, oh, I have a good idea for a book. They wouldn't come to unless they've had 20, 30, 40 years experience of teaching this and understanding the subject. That was obvious in the outline. So that it wasn't really a hard pitch to evaluate just uh, because it was all set up, queued off, um, ready to go. So in that case, do you, is the expectation that we're going to work on this idea as it, when the manuscript comes in and shape it a bit, or with someone that is you know, well-known like uh, Moore, you just say, you know what, whatever you give us, we'll accept that. I will say that even for someone who's very good, they don't always understand the importance of how a book begins. So, you know, if I have limited amount of energy on a project, I'm going to focus on the first chapter, uh, especially, because that's where you hook people in, give them the game plan and tell them what they're going to get out of the book and how kind of what the pathway is and what's going to pull them through the book. And I think most authors, even if they've done it a number of times, need someone else to come alongside to say, you know, are you connecting the dots? Have you done that work? I'll give you another project I'm working on, which might be a better case. It's John Philip Newell. He is a Anglican spiritual writer and spiritual director and conference speaker. He teaches Celtic spirituality and has been doing it a long time, has done a number of books. But he and his agent came to me because they wanted to do, he's, he's done a lot of books, but everyone who reads him pretty much is that small audience that are already into Celtic spirituality and already know John Philip Newell. And that's, that's a small, limited audience. They want to say, how can we branch out and do this wider audience? 
And so uh, John Phillips, since he's read so many books, his when he he's a wonderful writer, very smooth. He is great, but he doesn't realize that he uses all these terms that he assumes everyone knows. And if you're new to this, it's all, it feels very alien. And you get the message, oh, this isn't for me because I have no idea what he's talking about. Also assumes the uh, beauty and wonder of Celtic spirituality, which again, you can't do. And if you have never heard of it and don't know where it is and want to explore it. So he, he just has this, a lot of rhetorical devices. So I thought if he's open to my feedback, because that's a, one thing I look for when I'm in the uh, deal-making phase, are they open to editorial feedback? If he was open, and, he's, and he was, uh, I could help him, like, okay, here, here's how we could present that and make it much more inviting and expansive. And really, if he does that in that first chapter, I we did the first chapter like four times back and forth, whereas I just had to do a light edit on the rest of the book. So that's a more typical thing of what I get is really invest in the first chapter because that sets down all the pathways that make the book work. How would you describe what is a book thesis and how would you define a book thesis and relate it to that first chapter and how you feel that that sets the course for the book? I guess we don't usually use the word thesis. Uh, I think I would say what's the basic pitch of the book. It's almost like the movie industry. They say, what's your elevator pitch? You know, you get in an elevator with the producer and you have two minutes as the elevator goes to pitch your movie. Uh, that's the basic premise of the book. And if you have a good pitch, it should answer a number of questions to test whether or not the pitch is good. The first one, the most basic one, obviously, is what is the book? What is it about? What are you trying to do? Usually, a lot of times, one of the mistakes people make think that's that's the main task. Here's here's the book, but that's only the first question you ask, and then you have to ask a number of other things. What are you promising the reader? What are you promising that by reading this book they will get at by the end of it? You know, in a novel, it might be just entertainment and a thrilling story. There might be some meta messages in there, like an issue of our time that you also learn about or what the world looks like through someone else's eyes of you, that you'd be interested in. But it's still that same thing. What are you being promised? What are you being invited into? What's going to be delivered to you? And part of that measure is to ask another question. And I think this is something that's so important to keep in mind. A book is not like a magazine article. It is not like going to a lecture. All those are once, or even like, uh, well, let's say a magazine or a newspaper, you've already subscribed to it. And then you're deciding which of these uh, articles you want to read. Or you're going through your emails or you're going through a different conglomeration of good articles to read and you click on something because it, might, it draws you in and the article might even go viral but that's not that's not the same thing as a book a book has to answer the question why would i pay fifteen dollars ten dollars twenty dollars to purchase this and why would i spend my time reading it I know this sounds a little crass, but I call it kind of the narcissistic transaction. What, what's in it for me as a reader that I'm thinking this has X number of value and I'm willing to put, put down money for? And that is really big because you can have a fascinating article. That's why people talk about these great articles they read in the New Yorker that are just amazing. But you would never 
spend money on a deep book on geology of Idaho, uh, unless you're a little wonky and want to spend a lot of time on it. But that financial question or narcissistic question about what's in it for me, that's a great measure of, you know, what would make a good book. If it's so easy to answer, like, oh yeah, that's, that's great, then you've answered the question well. So the what's in it for me question, that's interesting to me. So how do authors write with that in mind? It is what is implicit in why you think a book needs to be written is what you want to provide and give to the reader. What's interesting, let's say this is true of history books, like there's some great history books, but what makes one stand out over another? One, it could be a really thorough investigation of the subject, cutting-edge research. There isn't some secondary level of transaction with the reader of, or our times, the, our ongoing conversation with the culture that's also at play. A good history book that really takes off, like a lot of the founding fathers of America, uh, why those books do so well, is there's a question of going back to the origin story of the United States and, and where have we gotten off course? How does it compare to today? Where did we start? Where are we going? Our related questions. So all those secondary kind of meta-narratives are going on besides whether or not it's good history. So that's one type. But when it, if it's spirituality or self-help, people usually have identified a problem and they're offering a solution to the problem. And so the what you're promising is that solution how am I, and that I can get there so here's nine steps to solving that problem and that you know that explains what the end result is that explains the structure of the book you need all nine steps to get to health or the solution or whatever um, that's that's the kind of thing I'm talking about so I'm curious you talk about how in the first chapter the author typically wants to engage the reader up front and lay out what the promise of the book is going to be. And I'm curious, in your experience, if by chapter 9, 10, whatever the last chapter is, if that promise has evolved, if it's different than when they first stated up front in the thesis chapter or the big idea chapter where you hook the reader. Oh, definitely. And I mean, part of it is, for instance, like on a novel, the promise is just to be entertained and, a, you know, a deep engagement, and you don't know where it's going to lead. You just want it to end in a way that you feels complete. So there, it's totally unknown where it's going to end. As you get into a topic, you can real what hooks you in and what you end up getting could deepen and change nature by the nature of a lot of the... the um, the topic, you know, just the, the topic deepens you and you see things in a new way and didn't even know you wanted. And so by the end, it's a very nuanced and different thing. Yes. So it can change. We're in the middle of really strange phenomenon right now in publishing as we're recording this, which is right during the Black Lives Matters marches during COVID. And you have all these books on race and they're very difficult conversations, very good books. And part of it is, you know, it's a pro like what I just read, right, white fragility. You know, it's a problem you need to deal with. But part of the entry into the book and the process as you go through it, you don't know what it will take to solve it or what to really understand the problem. 
And so by the end, you're in a very different place than you imagined. But that was kind of the promise of the book. We, you kind of know things can't stay the same. Promise was, we'll get you there to the end and what, what needs to change. And you don't understand what that is yet, but you will by the end. So in that first chapter, basically what you're calling the pitch chapter, we've used the phrase thesis chapter. But let me just back up. Is there a difference between like business books and say spirituality and self-help? And maybe there isn't, or there is, and that's why business books traditionally sell so much less than do other types of books. I don't think there's a difference in terms of this, what we're talking about. I think it's still, you have an audience, you uh, are promising to deliver them something and for them to change in some way or be enlightened in some way that they, something they, they can do better and whether or not you can deliver that. The difference in markets and how much books sell is just a matter of how big that audience is, what's the pool of people you can go after and who are interested in those books. I, I would say it's the same basic dynamics. I mean, in some ways, as I was saying, it's even some of the same functions in novel writing. It's just how, what you're promising, the nature of the covenant with the reader is different. But, I mean, not to get too uh, mechanistic about it, because part of it is, and I know, Dave, you've had this in your reading, sometimes it's someone you think is a master writer and you want to be delighted by their prose and are curious of what they're thinking about, and it doesn't really matter, like, the topic you just know you're just so curious about them but that still answers the questions like you're promising something you're you know you're delivering something and you bought that book for that reason it's just just not as utilitarian as, as yeah. i'm making it sound i think that gets us into the so what question and you've already alluded to this but um you've mentioned to me uh, in the past just about the importance of the so what question as it relates to writing the book and obviously that's related to your pitch and to the promise that you have but how does the lack of a so what affect uh, the thesis the book itself and also the reader the so what is another way of getting at what difference will this book make a lot of authors think that they know the topic is really important because in their life something happened and they, they know everyone needs to hear this and they can write a whole book about it. But the problem is that people don't know they need this. <laughs> so they're going to like, what? Why are you telling me this? Why do I need it? Uh, unless you already know his story or her story and you already, there's no so what. That's like, oh, that's interesting, but it's, I, I don't need to read that. I just had a call with an author today who wanted to do a deep dive into the phenomenon that's going on about the, we call them the nuns, the, peop, the growing percentage of people who check none to the question of religious affiliation. Fastest growing category uh, in America. And I think it's up to 40% now. And that's a huge change in America. And this is someone, a sociologist, funded study, looks at all the, talks to like all these interviews with all these people. And I didn't see a so what in, in the analysis. Like, does it change our politics? Is it going to change our culture? Does it mean religions are going to go away? Is the culture going to have moral debate in a way? Like none of that was in the book. It was just look at this huge shift 
let's go deep in the details without the overarching, like, well, what difference is it going to make? And that is a huge thing to overcome. Because how, how are people going to talk about it? Why are they going to write about it? What, why is he going to be invited to podcasts or be interviewed in media? Without the so what makes all that much harder. I think that makes book writing very difficult because that creates risk as a writer. Because the moment you move into the so what question, even with a lot of research behind you, you're moving, you're making a declaration about things that haven't really fully come to pass yet. And, and you're making a statement about that. It's more provocative, maybe, it might be something else. But um, it seems like the so what kind of pushes a writer out of his or her comfort zone. I think that no one writes a book without the so what being operative in their own mind. I mean, that book writing takes a lot of energy, a lot of time. It's hard work. And unless you're really motivated and have a passion for the subject, I don't see why anyone does it. So there's something, part of the discussion early on is like, what drove them to write that? And sometimes the reason that's a, a, a so what, like in the case of the person I talked to today, you know, there's a foundation that wanted to study this and paid him to do it. So when it's not a direct, internally motivated thing, that's where sometimes the, like the so what never being addressed foundation, we need a study, he's going to do it, but like he got paid, that's why he did it. It's not, it's not like he was internally driven to do it or pick the topic on his own. Usually, though, if you're going to write a book and it's your decision and your passion, you, there's a so what. So you have to draw, the, one of my jobs is to draw that out. By the time they get to the book, writing stage that's so far in the past of what hooked them in and they've taken all these made all these decisions that it's no longer obvious to them like they it's obvious it's obvious to them but it's not obvious to others like why they made that decision way back when so that's peeling that back to realize why they first got interested and why they devoted so much time to it, helping them reframe it to invite the people way back there, <laughs> you know, haven't gone down those steps yet, how to get back there and draw them into the point where he or she is now. So how do you begin drawing that out? What, what questions do you ask? How do you begin to get back to that place where they started? Like, what are some of the questions you ask? Are there any questions that authors who don't have the gift of an editor like you can begin to ask to get them back to that primary motivation that caused them to want to write this book in the first place? The questions we talk about today are the very questions I talk about with those authors. Like, why did you start on this road? What first interested you in this? Why would, you know, why do you think someone would spend $20 to buy this book? Those are the kind of questions where I get them to think that through. Uh, I had a book a number of years ago, as it gives you a good example, and it, we just could never get back there. But part of it, this, uh, this scholar was so excited because he had evidence that in the findings from the Pompeii, there's a big debate, which I wasn't aware of, whether or not Christianity had made it there before Vesuvius blew its top, which I think was, was it 130 or one, the 2nd century sometime. At first, in, with the history behind this was that a lot of uh, archaeologists had Christian assumptions before and kind of saw signs, and then there was a new era in which they were disproven, 
And so it became a weighted issue in archaeology circles. And he had evidence now to make the case why it was clear that some of the iconography and the things on the walls and et cetera shows that there was Christian signs and symbols. That was going to rock his world. But I, re- I realized the more I talked to him, like, that was a very small world. <laughs> <laughs> The more I talked about, I just could not get excited about the, why the layperson would be interested in that. And he could, he could not get back there and explain that, no matter how hard we worked. So that's why we decided not to publish just probably a university press book. When it got down to it, it wasn't a, a, a question for everyone. But it was still there. It's just that's why it would be good for a university press. You've talked about the idea itself in that first chapter, the pitch, in a sense, the promise. But you just mentioned something. You realize that the universe for which uh, that might get excited about that book is so small. How do you evaluate when a manuscript comes in? Let's say you love the idea, and or maybe maybe the two always go together. You love the idea, the pitch, the promise, and you can see that it has legs. How do you evaluate what they call today uh, the writer's platform? How does it, how does your mind work? When you're looking at a manuscript, when you're looking at a new author, you're really attracted to the idea, you're attracted to the content, and you're starting to get a vision for it. But how do you evaluate, okay, should we move forward? I realize you have a pub board that uh, either supports you or doesn't. But take us through kind of your mind as you look at a manuscript and are questioning whether or not you should purchase it based on this person's platform. Well, the platform question is a whole nother level, and that is a very important part of it because the secret about publishing, you know, you have huge publishers, you have small publishers, but what makes uh, publishing a strange business is that it, it always comes down to the business plan for a single book because no matter, there's no way to do it in a cookie cutter fashion, whatever your business plan you come for one book does not is not going to work on another book. So it's a matter of just how many little business plans you corral together. If you corral a lot together, you're a big publisher. If you do not as many, a medium publisher, or fewer than that, a small publisher. What's happened now, because of the kind of our media culture has so nichified, so that there aren't vehicles we have where that puts all the eyeballs to the same place but a bunch of places that do a small number of eyeballs it's really hard <clears throat> to get big numbers where everyone's looking in the same way and want will consider that book and in that environment and what's shifted a lot in the last 20 years is that it is more on the author's shoulders to establish their relationship with their audience, that we're looking for people who already have a relationship with their audience and there's an audience that's waiting to hear from them. And so that's where the platform comes in. We're looking for an either explicit or implicit business plan in the proposal because we cannot, it's very difficult, if not impossible, for an author to create something out of nothing. Author has a great book, and this is one of the mistakes people make. They think they've written a great book. It's just a great book. But if they have no way to publicize it, make it known, 
there's not much a publisher can do um, unless it's like one of those black swans that come out every once in a while that <laughs> uh, disprove that. But very rare and you can't count on it. We have to have, they have to have some way of people hearing about the book. And the platform is like, you know, strong social media following, able to get on TV, writes regularly for some media outlet um, that has some prestige. He has a podcast or is often on podcasts. However, it is, whatever the circumstances, there's any number of ways of doing it. We're looking for some way that they're in front of an audience. And without that, it's hard to make, it's just hard to sell a book. So that does come into the uh, equation. It's a little easier with fiction just because there's ways in place for fiction for new authors to emerge. Uh, it's designed for that and there's mechanisms for that. For nonfiction though, it's definitely more, much more burden on the author's shoulders to show that, they, that there's an audience waiting for the book. So Mick, how do you know when you're working on a manuscript, it comes in and you start to work on it and the thesis is not working? What are the signals? What is happening? No, that's a really good question, and that happens because sometimes we buy a book and it's not quite right, but we know the good author, good platform uh, in front of the audience, and we'll just figure it out. And then uh, we're actually into the book, and there are certain signs we look for. If it's really difficult to title the book, that's a sign that the book doesn't know what it wants to say yet. Inevitably, it happens many times that, that we, we go back and say, okay, something's wrong with the book, not that we're not uncreative today. <laughs> it makes it a lot easier if you know what you want to say. Um, also, the structure of the book. If you had to make decisions about how the book unfolds, what comes next, or you know, what, what is the breakup, or how are you going to, what's part one, part two, part three. If you're having difficulty answering that, it's probably you haven't decided fully what you want to say and what the destination is that you're driving to. Um, so those are some of the signs I, I look at. And that's why I spend so much time editing the first chapter, because I find that as soon as the author and I really come to terms, we have the same vision of the first chapter. It really solves all the problems down the line. I don't really like buying a book unless that agreement is there, um, because it's so much harder later, but it does happen. We used to have the phrase, uh, first drafts are destiny. So when a manuscript came in, now this was in uh, magazine publishing, but unless it was 80% there, we would never accept it simply because we figured we could take it 20% of the way there. But anything below 80%, when you're starting to try to take a manuscript and ask the author for revisions, you simply, it starts to break down and, and it's, it, the, the manuscript itself is broken. Is there any application or similar thing in, in, in book evaluation? Oh, definitely, definitely. The author has to be willing to take feedback as one, and two, they, they need to explore a little bit what we talked about earlier, why they're writing it, what they want to deliver, and if they can't get there, if they can't articulate that, that is a sign that we should it's just going to cause too many headaches even if the author is set up has a great platform uh, we've had books big 
platform books, uh, big platform authors who write books that don't work at all. And part of it is they really don't have anything to say or they're not sure what they want to say, but just felt they should write a book. And that's a terrible situation. They're very seldom does a sign topic work. <laughs> so it has to come from some place and some passion. And that comes through in the writing, but it also needs to be there for the structure. So I think that that's a wrap for today. Thanks so much for joining us today, Mickey. I'm Melissa Parks. And I'm Dave Getz. Now buckle up and write. 